You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lassiter, co-founder and CEO of Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. Listen to our podcast to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Listen to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Listen to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. I'm your host, Miles Lassiter. On today's episode, I speak with Nikhil Pai, who is the technical co-founder of Hearth. Hearth was founded to give home improvement contractors and businesses the tools to achieve the American dream. Hearth does this by providing an all-in, one-tool suite for owners to manage their operations, covering lead management, quoting, customer financing options, invoicing, contracts, payments, and checking accounts. Nikhil has operated the business since its inception seven years ago, from individual contributor to VP level in product, data, revenue operations, and customer success. Over this time, Hearth has grown to serve over 14,000 users, 23 million revenue run rate, and raised over 60 million in venture capital funding. On the show, we talk about finding product market fit, how a founder's role evolves over time, talk about the importance of feedback loops and how to build them into your business and the best advice he ever received as a founder. I think you'll enjoy this. So please stay tuned. Welcome to Startups for Good. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Mal. Happy to be here. So how did you get interested in home improvement contractors? Yeah, you know, it's a funny story where I had no reason to be in the industry to begin with. I was fresh out of college, had done computer science. And what actually happened was my co-founder, Anthony, was working at ABC as chief of staff for Joe Wamsdale and was just looking at the portfolio businesses and trying to see what he could add on top of them that could be their own business that was valuable. And one of the portfolio companies was called BuildZoom. It was a home improvement lead generation business. And that's where he started investigating, you know, how do people currently pay for home improvement? And it turned out to be a lot of credit card debt, some savings, some home improvement, uh, home equity lines of credit. And he realized there was an opportunity to make that better. Um, and that was kind of our, you know, initial beachhead into the industry was thinking about how do we better finance home improvement? And then through actually building a SaaS platform for contractors to finance at point of sale, we kind of realized, you know what, these guys have a lot of business. They're also doing some financial jujitsu to run their businesses. Usually you have to you know, borrow money from one project to pay for the other. That's why financing is so important to them. We kind of realized, you know what, this is this is a super interesting mission to go down to build software for contractors to better manage their businesses and better kind of handle the financials. And that's how we ended up in the home improvement space and really building for this set of users. And so how would you state your mission? Yeah, for us, it kind of comes down to this American dream of beating the odds of starting a small business. You know, we, we really believe that Everyone should be able to, you know, build a livelihood for themselves, especially in home improvement. It's such a noble uh, field to actually, you know, create something for someone to live in. And we want to help these contractors who honestly fail at quite a high rate, about 50% after five years will fail. We want to help contractors beat the odds of running a small business and build a sustainable business and career and livelihood for themselves and kind of achieve that American dream. That does sound like a noble goal. What are the reasons people fail? That seems like a lot of failure. Yeah, it goes it goes back to that financial jujitsu, right? You know, a lot of these guys are 
tradesmen and we we uh, we've talked to a lot of them and they go through this cycle where maybe they start off you know working in on projects you know as construction workers as sales reps really kind of you know doing the boots on the ground work and they at some point as that business scales and grows realize you know what i can go out and do this myself i've learned from you know whoever was mentoring them and they want to go do it themselves but that means they never really get a lot of experience on how to run a business and so they they try to scale very quickly. Honestly, where most of them fail is going from you know zero to a million dollars in annual revenue. That is where most of them fail because at that point they're either starting to hire or buy equipment, and their financial stack gets out of whack. They either take on too many projects and someone stiffs them, or they mess up. They have to do an insurance claim, and they run out of cash, and that causes them to have to file for bankruptcy and close down their business. So. You know, that kind of area of just scaling your business and keeping your books right is honestly very hard for a lot of people since they are just focused so hard on trade and building and servicing the customer rather than operating their business on a financial sense. So it sounds like you're saying it's a knowledge, focus, and skills gap that has them focusing on the trade and selling new business rather than the financing and the operations and the other nuts and bolts of the back office. Yeah, absolutely. That is that is the gap they have. And that's where we kind of focus as a fintech company on, you know, how do we help educate and keep these folks aware of their situation? So that way they aren't, you know, over leveraged. Now you're lending to some of these folks, right? Um, we're actually unique in the sense that we aren't lending ourselves. We actually work with various other online lenders, such as SoFi, Best Egg, Lightstream, anyone who does online personal loans, and we are actually a distribution engine for those online personal lenders. Gotcha. Because I was wondering about the underwriting with a 50% failure rate over that five years that you mentioned. It seems like it would be tough to pick which ones were going to be successful. Yeah, for sure. And that's why the, the model we actually follow is we are funding the homeowners. So we're doing project financing. So the homeowner is actually the one taking out the loan to pay for the contractor and the, the best way to think about this is like kind of like a car dealership. Yeah, you know, when you go buy a car, you get offered many loan options from different lenders by the dealership. We are providing that same kind of software to the contractor. And so we don't actually have to underwrite the contractor. We just underwrite the homeowner on their personal credit. So you describe yourself as a fintech company. How much do you rely on the software service that you're providing to the contractors versus the lenders as your being your true customer. Yeah, for sure. There's definitely a bit of both. And over time we've modulated, you know, how much we focus on each each side of the business. And so it is like a B2B to B to B to C, where there's a lender, the contractor, us and the end homeowners. There's many um, parties to manage. For us, we kind of see the uh, lenders more as just folks doing affiliate marketing. And so we're just another channel for them to issue loans. So we don't do too much for them. At this point, we you know, obviously you know, do reports and, and keep them close and let them know how the market's moving. But really, our customer is the contractor and ultimately their client, the homeowner, since those folks are just as important part of the equation. Now, you've built this company to be quite successful. Could you share some of the metrics? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, it's been seven years at this point, and we've issued over half a billion dollars worth of loans, which is super exciting. And then we have 14,000 plus contractors on the platform actively subscribing using your software. 
And then on the employee side, you know, for me, part of the big win here has been growing the company and creating jobs is we have 140 employee, full-time employees kind of all over the country, but mainly focused in San Francisco and Austin. And then on a revenue rate, we've reached at least $20 million, $23 million annual run rate. Oh, wow. And how has your role evolved over time, over those seven years? Yeah, you know, kind of goes to me wearing all the hats. It was actually a funny joke when I when I first was, you know, joined the company. Anthony, my co-founder, is like, hey, you know, come join. I was like, what do you want me to do? I could be an engineer. I could be a product manager. I could be a general employee. And that last part kind of really stuck um, as general employee. So when the company started, I was an engineer. I knew I wanted to do product. So I was the first engineer, first product manager. And then I also covered the gap in design since I had done some graphic design work. Over time, we managed to hire more folks out. So I dropped engineering, I dropped design, we hired folks who were specialized in those skills. And so I really focused on product for the first couple of years. Then in 2020, when COVID happened, we decided we need to do some reorganization of the business. And that's where Anthony tapped me and said, hey, can you go reorganize customer success and revenue operations for me? And so that's where I actually left the product world and went into operations and kind of scaled out those teams. But I really kind of still treated them as you know products within themselves. I was a product manager at heart. So I treated this as part of the product that I was optimizing and building, whether it was you know, using Salesforce to do internal, te- internal tools or using RCS team to run some tests where they were calling on some cadence with a task system I had built. So I was VP of CS and revenue operations for kind of the latter four years of the business. And then additionally in 2020, because I was taking more management responsibility, I also built out the data team. So I wasn't doing the individual work myself anymore and had three or four data, data scientists and data analysts reporting to me to kind of do the reporting, modeling, forecasting, and pipelining for the business. But, you know, kind of continue to touch everything. I'm very technical and had a lot of context. So I was able to pretty much help anyone in the business, you know, whether it was doing marketing projects on how to better analyze data all the way to, you know, fundraising decks, doing our quarterly retreat agendas. I kind of helped with all of it since, you know, for me, anything that could help the company is is in my best interest. Any advice for other founders who are not in the CEO's seat in terms of how you approach your work and how you react to these kinds of changes and evolutions? Yeah, I think something that I kind of noticed over time, especially as we hired more people and things scaled, is people lose sight of the fact that as a founder, you built everything you see in a company, right? There's just people behind every decision. And so those things can change. Like, you know, as the company scales, folks think like, oh, well, this has always been done this way. I got to keep doing that this way. As a founder, you really have that insight that, you know what? We made these decisions for these reasons and they may not be right anymore. And so you can actually change and mold the company in many more ways than you think are possible. It can break habits, force change, change systems, because you really have that context of why things got to the way they are and empower people to do the same. So that's something I was really conscious of as we scaled of like, you know what, I can, if I need to hook two systems together, yes, we could try to coordinate five different teams or I could just go do this, right? I could just go make it happen because I'm technical or I know the right people and I can just kind of instigate change and and be that impetus. So you're saying as a founder, not only do you have the background, but you also have the trust and you know the people and the systems 
so that when you say a change is possible and needed, people are more likely to believe you. Yeah, absolutely. Can you give an example of a big change you've made in the organization? You know, for example, one of the projects I worked on in the last couple of years is we always had a sales-driven motion where our sales team would actually go out and call every customer, sell them over the phone, collect credit card over the phone, and process it that way. And we wanted to try start testing self-serve just to kind of get a sense of if it was possible. And folks were like, oh, this will take, you know, a very long time. It's very complicated. You know, we don't have time in the roadmap. And because I had helped set up the initial billing systems and, you know, worked with the sales team when we originally created all the checkout processes, I realized, you know what? You know, there's actually this side hack that we could possibly run to make this all work and string it together that would have taken something that folks thought would use six months and a lot of engineering bandwidth down into a one month project where me and one engineer could kind of pair on some scripting and get it done. Well, that sounds like very valuable for the business. How do you avoid that being perceived, you know, avoided not being perceived as sort of cowboy, oh, he just gets to break the rules and go outside of the organization and get things done because he's a founder. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, that's a very interesting point on the culture of the company. And that's where we, from a very early on point being very wanted to be data driven and test oriented. And so that's why we kind of always frame things like there are things that should be tested and we should try. And if we're not testing often, we're not learning quickly enough. And so for us, this was like a test we wanted to run and we didn't want to invest a lot of engineering bandwidth, you know, kind of giving that context to everyone like, Hey, we're going to try this out. If it works, we're going to scale it up and we're going to do it the right way when we scale it. This is just that initial test to make sure things are, if this is even possible and worth investing in. So we encourage everyone to think of that way. I think as a founder, definitely giving all of the context as much as possible and repeating, yeah, we're just trying things out was was the most important to to get people's buy-in. Gotcha. So you mentioned your co-founder. How do you divide responsibilities? Anthony was actually a good friend all the way from middle school to high school. So, you know, a lot of, you know, our initial founding was built on the trust between me and him. You know, just, you know, childhood having traveled together and just kind of kept in contact for so many years. And so he was the one who really kind of led the charge as CEO and founding the company and setting it up and then brought me in. Joe was more on the investment side. You know, he was still continuing to run ABC. And so he was a chairman of the board, gave us our initial seed check, gave us advice and made sure we had an advisor. So he wasn't really in the day-to-day operations. For Anthony and I, there was always an understanding of like, you know, he really understands business, having been in the investing world having raised the capital. And so I, you know, kind of knew he was going to be CEO, building the company from the beginning as CEO. And I would be the product and engineering side, given that I have the technical background and knew that I wanted to be the one focused on building the product. So that's how we kind of divided initially. And then over time, you know, he scaled as a leader. I kind of figured out what I wanted to do and kind of continue to communicate. And that's how I found my, my spot doing kind of all these things. Just, you know, for me, I wanted to learn and build as much as possible. And that's what I got to do. Bedrock level of trust that you had before you started a business together has been really valuable. Yeah, absolutely. I think if I hadn't had that trust, it would have been a lot more difficult to get through the initial phase of the company. There was obviously you know, a lot of ups and downs and having that level of trust was super important to get through that. And he was someone from a very young age, I knew was a great leader and I could trust. And he was always very transparent with me about everything going on in the business. So it really, really was important to kind of have as as we scaled. Now you mentioned some ups and downs. 
Can you give examples of the extreme ups and the extreme downs? Yeah, you know, my my extreme up and down, I always really think back to was that first year of trying to find product market fit. And we had originally started off with that kind of thesis of, of you know, let's just go find homeowners who need financing for their projects. And so we launched via BuildZoom, that lead generation website, and doing some D2C to try to target homeowners directly to take on home improvement loans. We launched in April of 2017, and we didn't actually issue our first loan for five months. And so, you know, we were super excited, thought we were going to just take off. And of course, things never go the way you you expect them to. And we, we really just had to come into the office every day and keep on working despite things not working. That is, you know, that went on for about a year. I think, you know, by one year in of launching the platform, about 10 months in, we'd gone from zero dollars of revenue per month to $2,000 of revenue a month, but we were burning a lot more. So it was really challenging for us to be like, why are we coming in every day? But we got to keep on just testing, optimizing the funnel, figuring things out. And also, I think by the end of, you know, December of that year, we were all pretty much at a very low point of like, is this going to work? But we, we kept on trying. We were like, you know, we got to expand our vision, try some side hacks. This is where the contractor SaaS part came in and said, we thought, why don't we just try working with contractors? Q1 of 2018, we set a just crazy goal of like, let's try to make 20K this quarter. And remember, we had only made $2,000 per month at the most at that point. So it was really quite a far shot off. Set this crazy goal. We're like, let's just, you know, build this contractor SaaS business, you know, repackage everything we had built as point of sale financing. And we went to a roofing expo, the International Roofing Expo in New Orleans in February of that year with this dinky little platform we built. I set up a PayPal account to actually charge users the night before. And that's when we just went, started pitching customers, talking to them, really getting to know them. And we actually managed to sell some subscriptions at the show. I'm like, oh my God, this may work. And after that show, what was the craziest thing for us was contractors started originating loans left and right. It's something we had really struggled with over such so many months and contractors were able to do it. And that's when we realized, you know what? We have something here. We got to run with it. And we really doubled down, built out a whole sales team in Austin, trying to sell contractors, these contractors. We each individually onboarded. I remember calling contractors from the kitchen of the office, onboarding them, each one individually, and really getting that super exciting moment of liftoff where you have your product starting to work. You're talking to customers and the business is growing. We actually managed to hit that 20K quarterly revenue target. And so that was the high to the debt low that we were feeling just one, you know, one quarter earlier. It comes right after the other, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. I really like the story of setting what seems like almost an impossible goal and really focusing on it, putting all your efforts behind it. There's also a theme here of showing up in person and selling customers, standing in the booth and <laughs> learning what their real needs are and getting that direct feedback from them of, yeah, I'll pay for it right now. And uh, taking their payment information, especially as a more technical person, I wonder if that was a new experience for you. Absolutely. Yeah. I knew talking to users was always important, but really, you know, it was it was a true masterclass in, on how you talk to users and, and really sell them. And that's something we really, we continued on later in the business, you know, for many years afterwards, I would always make a trip out, you know, maybe once a quarter to Austin and just take contractors out to lunch. And you just learn so much by meeting them in person, 
and just seeing their mannerisms, you know, one, one of the things I really remember when we met a contractor at like a Apple's Applebee's for lunch is afterwards he took out, uh, took us out to his truck and showed us his binder of how he would pitch every customer. And he'd flip through all his certifications and show us his badges. And he was really proud of like all the work he'd done and, and his little portfolio that he'd show every customer and really gave us a sense of, you know, A, how important this mission is. You know, when you get to meet your customers, you really feel that, that value you give to them and how your mission is important and also helps you understand how to build a better product for them because you, you really understand how to meet them where they're at. And what's the future hold for the company? Yeah, you know, at this point, we, we had started off mainly around the, the financing side. And over the last couple of years, we've expanded that to be kind of encompassing all the tools you would need to get a contractor business off the ground. So things like invoicing, payments, contracts, quotes, leads, checking accounts. We're trying to build that all in one suite. So that way, when contractors, you know, purchase the software, they have everything they need to build a sustainable business, have your eyes on everything and not get caught in any weird cash flow issues. So we've kind of built all of these, you know, buds and seeds to those tools. And there's a lot more to build and make them feature complete. That's what we're kind of focused on over the next uh, year or so is how do we make sure all of our, our tools that we built out are as lovable as possible, as valuable as possible to the contractors and make sure that we're more now of a full all-in-one tool rather than just a point of sale financing tool that we were and so are in the minds of the market. So really expanding that product vision and making sure the market understands where we're at. Given your experience, what advice would you give to an aspiring founder? So one, I think feedback loops are super important. So if you're starting a business, you have to really think about how do you, how do you get as many cycles as possible? You know, something I think actually a mistake we made early on is we did annual subscriptions for our business. And so that meant that we could put off retention for, for a full year and like not understand that feedback loop. And so if I could go back and say, you know, we got to do monthly subscriptions, just so that way we have as many shots on goal as possible and understand and learn as quickly as possible on how our business is involving, our product is evolving. And there's other ways of doing that also, about how often you talk to users, your metrics, you just want to make sure that you have feedback loops in place so that we are always learning and as quickly as possible. That will that that is how your company evolves over time and, and the iteration process. That's interesting. So your advice is to do a shorter term subscription so that you know whether your customers really value the product. Yeah, absolutely. You know, annual subscriptions were great for our payback period. You know, how quickly our ad spend was returned to us and really great gave the business great economics. But on a feedback loop side, that meant, you know, it took us a while to realize where our attention was at. And then we had to, you know, increase that. And had we known that sooner, there's things we could have done, you know, one year early. I, I to me, that is a lost year in time. And a sort of a one year loss is actually, you know, five years loss in another company. So super important to get quick and early feedback loops. Are there other ways that you build feedback loops into the business? Yeah, absolutely. So that is things like, you know, we did a lot of surveys, meeting with customers as quickly as possible and often as possible. The other thing we did was we're super data driven. So we have just hundreds of dashboards that we built out with metrics for each product to understand what the usage is like. And whenever you launch a product, we honestly call probably the first hundred people who set it up to understand how they're using it. When you think back to the decision to become a co-founder, what was it 
aside from that bedrock trust that you talked about, what was it that made you decide to do it? I had always loved the idea of starting a company since I was young. It's something my parents really kind of encouraged me to do. And I had the amazing opportunity to intern at Slack in my junior year. I was talking to the head of product at the time. I'm like, hey, you know, I love what PMs do, but I also love building and coding. How do I get to do both? Uh, and she said, you got to start a company. That's the only way you get to do both things because at any larger company, those those roles are very split. So I knew I wanted to start a company. And when I was graduating college, I was really looking at a lot of those opportunities because I wanted to be able to code and um, be a PM. Gotcha. And you felt like this was the right match. Yeah. And you know, it was interesting because there were many startups coming out of college where folks were just giving it a shot. The reason why I was really, you know, in addition to the trust with Anthony, excited to do, do this company was I was, you know, I knew nothing about starting companies. And because of Joe's involvement, I felt a little bit safer. It was like the least risky startup possible, which, you know, is a paradox. But, you know, we had some of the best advisors possible in Silicon Valley giving us the guardrails to go do what we want to do. So a lot of that freedom of building a company, getting to try things out, but then getting to talk to folks who had done it before and making sure that, we could test our hypotheses with, you know, seasoned operators and then go make the mistakes ourselves. So that really great combination of advisors and freedom. Right. Is there any particular advice that you received that was very powerful and helpful for you? Yeah. One of the things that was super important for us early on, um, we got advice on was kind of data completeness, right? Data is an asset and you want to collect as much of it as possible upfront to create a full profile of your customer base and really understand them. So that was something we really thought about is, you know, how do we make sure when we are onboarding our users and, you know, having them use the product, how do we collect as much data about them as possible? Because that only helps us do analysis later on and build a better product. You can't go back and collect that, right? You can't go back a year later and ask a customer hey, what kind of business you are. Like, you're not going to get the same level of information back. So getting that, thinking about that upfront of how do we build out these profiles from the beginning really helped us kind of make sure we could keep tabs on how our customer base was changing. How do you think about the tension between collecting data to know your customers and serve them better versus asking them fewer questions so there's less friction in a sign-up process? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. There's definitely a mix and you have to give and get. So for us, that was something in our onboarding process, we, we tried to really convey is like, hey, when you give us this piece of information, it may be used to customize your profile page. Or in the sense of like, for example, when we were setting up payments account, you know, you're giving us a lot of information, but you're gonna get the fastest way to set up payments possible. Sorry, fastest way to, you know, collect payments possible. So a lot of give and get, but at certain points, we were a little shameless and there's only, you know, a period of time we could get away with this for, which is, you know, early adopters. And over time, we did have to scale that back. I see. So your data collection efforts have changed over time, depending on what segment of the market you are currently signing up. Yes, correct. How has your mission as a company helped you in hiring or in growing? How has it impacted the company? Yeah. And, you know, I think our mission to has changed over time. So one, it has helped us kind of, you know, stay focused, right? Every quarter or so we, we talk about the mission to make sure is this still the right mission and how is it changing? 
as we learn more about the market. So the original kind of point of sale financing, we realized, you know, after meeting with contractors, we want to expand our mission and, and pass service more of them. And through that, we kind of have a great narrative that we can tell potential employees of like, you know, we, we didn't just, you know, have this shining star in the sky that we realized this is our mission. We actually evolved it over time by talking to customers and had a lot of anecdotes that we could tell people to have them really connect to the mission rather than just having it be a statement. So an example of this, I like to think, you know, I often tell a lot of candidates is one of the things that we had a happen, you know, when we first started the company and issued those original loans is we had a homeowner call us to thank us for finding them financing for their project. They had their roof falling down and they had really poor credit and their contractor luckily had signed up for Hearth and used that us to finance that project. And because of our lender suite, we were actually able to service folks with lower credit. They had never heard about the lender they were working with, but they were so thankful for that connection and our software. Otherwise, they would have never been able to afford this project. So those kind of are the anecdotes that make the mission more real. And I love to tell candidates in helping them, you know, connect to the home improvement story because a lot of people don't have a connection when they're initially joining the company. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap up. Thank you for sharing that story. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Anytime. Uh, happy to be here. Where can people learn more online? Yeah, um, you can follow me on Twitter. Um, it's my first name, N-I-K-H-I-L-P-I, as my handle. Thanks so much. Awesome. Thanks, Miles. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. Startups for Good is brought to you by Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. If you're inspired today and want to reach out, please visit our website, purposebuilt.vc. Thank you.